Chapter 4. What does Father mean? When we say, God is our Father, what do we mean? Is Father merely a term of procreation, of begetting? Is creating all there is to the fatherhood of God? Does our relationship to this being we cannot see extend no further than birth, both the physical and the spiritual? Does the Father of Jesus make an appearance in the opening chapters of Genesis and then fade into the background until the great white throne of Revelation? Alas, we live as if such is indeed the case. We resemble ungrateful children who grab a gift but then turn their backs and walk away, never expressing thanks, never even acknowledging whence the gift originated. All men and women take physical life, but most offer nothing back in response to their Maker. Most do not even view it as a gift at all, but as a mere fact of the natural world. Those numbering themselves Christians receive spiritual life and give back perhaps a little more, but chiefly to the Son and Spirit. They pay only cursory heed to him out of whom both flow, the one who sustains that life of the second birth they enjoy. They approach relationship to him as if he were 10,000 miles away and only looked in their direction when they did something wrong. Thus, by lives live virtually independent of him, on both physical and spiritual planes, is verified the non-understanding we bring to the very idea of Father. We bustle about in our spiritual abodes, on a first name and familiar basis with brothers and sisters, Son and Spirit yet think little of the householder himself. We regard him with a detachment that relegates him to the attic regions, leaving him uninvolved in the daily goings-on of the very place of which he is the master. Why? Because we find it comfortable to do so. Whatever the sun may have told us, we can't yet help being just a little afraid of the father. We haven't yet learned what manner of father he is. Jesus invites us to fellowship with him and walk beside him. He has given commands to be followed, it is true, but he will not press the issue. Jesus says, I obey my father, but he will not force us to do the same. He shows us his example, but he leaves us free to choose. The crowds came, the crowds went. The rich young ruler came, then left. Jesus did not try to convince him to change his mind. His own best friends stumbled and occasionally fell away. Yet Jesus did not coerce. He went about his business, leaving the on-off switch of their wills fully operative. The Holy Spirit, meanwhile, is the feel-good third of God's being. He will pray for us when we don't know how to pray. He guides us. He gives us of his gifts. He inspires us. He leads us into truth.
Jesus called him the Comforter, and that is what he does. He soothes and consoles. He convicts and guides. But for those few who venture, not just two-thirds of the way into God's house, but all the way, through the Son and Spirit, into the Father's presence, the parameters of the relationship between Creator and Created take on huge added weight. The words of the Father are more exacting. He says, My Son showed you His example. Now you must obey. He left you room. I will leave you none. He says, When I send you my spirit, he may give you of my pleasing gifts. But the reason is only to enable you to give your life wholly to me. The gifts I, as Father, give are all good and are even richer and more complete than what he showed you. But to receive them fully, I may require of you the cross. There is no compromise, no half measure with God's fatherhood. Little wonder, then, that we try to keep fatherhood at arm's length, locked away in the attic of our spiritual house. Yet Jesus himself spoke of the importance, indeed the imperative, of knowing the Father. I must be about my father's business, he said. And later, I and the father are one. And again, I have come to show you the father. Endless indeed is the fellowship. Unlimited is the comfort. Wondrous is the love to which the son and the spirit attest but only when we know the Father are right. It is into this knowing that Jesus came to lead and instruct us. He seeks to introduce us to a life lived with the Father, not a mere begetting, but a life of ongoing moment-by-moment -moment intimacy on all levels of humanhood, mind, heart, soul, and will. It is toward intimacy with the Father that the Son would guide us. For such he was born. For such he died. If we do not take his hand and walk along the upward pathway the Son has marked out for us, following in his footsteps, even those most active among Christian men and women will only be offspring of the Father, children begotten, but not sons and daughters of intimacy. Let us therefore, as Thomas Kelly exhorted, dare to venture together into the inner sanctuary of the soul where God meets man in awful intimacy. Do not shrink away from that word, for truly the association he seeks is not awful. Invert the syllables full of awe, and discover the key to the great doorway of life, the pathway upward out of the valley. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the Proverbs. What is this fear, the mortal terror of something awful? 
a thousand times no. Rather, it is an open-hearted bowing before the awe-full, a God full of awe and mystery and wonder. Does he truly want to be my father and spend time with me and see to my every need, my every thought? Does he want to take care of me and reveal himself to me? Does he want to fulfill all my mind can think to think, all my heart feels, all my soul invisibly longs for? Does he want to transform my will into the most powerful instrument available for the doing of good? Does he want to give me his business to be about, just like Jesus? Yes, all this and more awaits us. Of such is life on the mountaintops. The God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and earth, the Father of Jesus Christ himself, desires daily companionship with me. He wants me to call him Father. Father.